Incoming transmission from the Babylon Project. Welcome to the Babylon Project, our last best hope for trash. This is a rewatch podcast for Babylon 5, starring two veteran hosts and one newbie. I am your newbie host, Justin, and here to help me along are my co-hosts, Jude and Anna. Jude, Anna, how are you doing? Uh, I spent a good portion of today unconscious with a headache. Oof. Yeah. So, I mean, compared to most days, great. Well, and um, my my new my new tattoo ink is uh, finally starting to like not itch like like crazy. So that's good. Yeah, that's an improvement. Yeah. I no longer want to claw at my arm, so that's good. Nice. Who who knows how long that will last, though? All right. Uh, per our episode, I have a question for you both. Alrighty. What is the horrible, embarrassing family ritual that your significant others must suffer through? Uh, when they Ooh. visit your side of the family. Interesting question. Um, well, on my side, it's definitely my dad talking way too much about his sex life and like with way too much detail. Whoa. Like, way too much detail. <laughs> Can a ritual be a person? Because I mean, if sure. so, my uh, now deceased, rest in peace, Uncle Jim, uh, Uncle Jimmy. Uh, would count. Uh, Uncle Jimmy, for my entire life, was renowned chiefly for being the person that was the biggest crotchety ass at every family gathering. Um, my earliest memories of Uncle Jimmy are of him uh, hovering in the background dur- uh, during Thanksgiving dinner prep, uh, heckling in a oh, no. like Statler and Waldorf style way as the other as my uh he's my great uncle technically uh as as my other uncles tried to get the the dinner ready he was also notorious for uh telling extraordinarily inappropriate war stories and uh criticizing my cousin alex's fashion sense he was a gauntlet to 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 to, to run through uh i gotta be honest but he was uh also in his weird way very kind at times so you know like i said uh rip and uh, thanks for uh, all the all the books and the weird checks. So you know, and I'll say that I'll say that we have managed to figure out a way to defuse the whole like my dad talking too much about his sex life thing, which is that we finally like sat him down. And we're like, Father, would you like to hear these things if you were learning about them about us? <laughs> and he's like, No. And it's like, Well, perhaps. Perhaps we feel the same about you, Father. Let's get some golden rule up in here. Exactly. It occurs to me, 42 episodes in, (laughs) that I don't think we've ever asked how you're doing, Justin. You always ask us, Jude, Anna, how are y'all doing tonight? And we answer and make bits, and we never ask you. I mean, I'm sure you've done it like once or twice. I, this I don't is think where, so. It would take me like. It would but take to be clear, I'm like, not asking. To be clear, I'm not asking. I don't. I'm not trying to like break tradition at this point. I'm just pointing it out. 
It would take me a little under three hours to check if if you guys had if you guys had ever done it. Like assuming, I assume that it happened like once in the first five episodes and then never happened again. I bet Zathras knows. Zathras will you, tell us. You've answered questions a few times, but yes, how how are you doing, Justin? No, well, what are you doing? I just said we weren't asking. We're no, not, no, no. How are you doing, Justin? <sighs> See, I should have brought it up. And what about your family, Justin? Oh, so my family, uh, my dad will just like, in a very, like, in the most loving way possible, my dad very much likes alcohol. Like, he likes the taste of it. He likes, you know, he likes doing fun stuff with it. If you go to our house, and it doesn't really matter, like, he'll do this to friends. Like, I I assume that if I have, if, like, I haven't brought a significant other home in a long time, um, for various reasons, but... I assume, like, he, his entire thing for being a host is to just, like, give alcohol to people continually. And he mm. is, like, meeting this in the most well-meaning manner. Like, if you say no, he will stop. But if you don't, he will just say, oh, let's try this. And that's just generally how the board game part of the evening goes. Um, it's very fun. Um, you will probably drink several hundred dollars worth of booze in one evening Goodness. because his tastes run expensive. It's great. Yeah. That sounds like a go. That could go a couple different ways. Yeah. 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 But it's, <laughs> it's generally pretty fun. It involves like, um, generally by the like end of a evening where like the family has gotten together, we have been removed and ridden back into the wheel multiple times. <laughs> It sounds Usually, about right. this just depends on how bad I'm kicking my dad's ass at Illamont. <laughs> As for how I'm doing, I'm doing good. I have I, I I got my hair recolored last week. I'm it's looking uh, good. I'm very ready for a three day weekend. Um, and um, there's we've got two good episodes of of B five to talk about. Right. Yeah, we yeah. do. Yeah, after after a kind of rough patch. Yeah, one of them is more like traditionally solid the other one well is is a gift the other (laughs) one is a gift and i do not know if we will be able to contain my energy like i will be able to power a city block with what what goes on in uh the second of these episodes but first the role of goblin in this episode of babylon 5 will be played by justin as opposed to jude yeah, because Jute doesn't Jute doesn't get to do any summaries this week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so Meanwhile, you gave the Bimbari bullshit to me. So <laughs> Yeah. I, I, I know that you, you gave are... the Bimbari and time bullshit to me. <laughs> so yeah, we're covering two episodes tonight. The first uh, episodes nine and ten of season four, Atonement and Racing Mars. As you might have inferred, Anna has atonement. Take us away. Alrighty. So our A plot for this episode follows Delenn, who we first see at uh, Customs talking to members of a Mimbari delegation. She's apparently being called back to Minbar, but requests one more day on the station before departing to speak with Sheridan. This becomes more unsettling as the leader of the delegation reminds her that if her business on Minbar, uh, something called the Dreaming, does not go well, she will not be allowed to return to John. Squints. Mm-hmm. 
The other Mimbari also suggest that perhaps Delenn should actually tell John about this, but despite having had keeping secrets from him bite her on the ass literally nine episodes ago, she does not seem enthusiastic about this prospect. Next, we see John heading into Delenn's quarters. She greets him wearing a very snazzy black evening gown and suggests that they have dinner together and that they afterward complete the ritual of her watching him sleep. Sheridan tries to decline the latter part of this, uh, since he has late meetings and also is kind of creepy, but she insists as she has to leave for Mimbar in the morning and doesn't know when she'll be back, and this is very important to her that they complete this. As promised, she watches him for the final night of the ritual and leaves early in the morning before he wakes. We learn more about the situation once she reaches Mimbar. Her clan leader, Kalen, disapproves of her relationship with Sheridan. Apparently, no Minbari has ever taken an alien as a mate, which seems wildly implausible. Uh, yeah, we're, point we'll, of it, we'll, point we'll of talk order. about this. I'm going to interrupt you because I didn't get to do a summary, so there's no none of my bullshit in here. If we are to believe that Minbari and human souls have been going back and forth, I refuse to believe that no Minbari has fucked an alien. Because humans have fucked every alien. I mean, I believe that's canon. Well, we'll get to this, Jude. This is a part of the plot, Jude. This is this is a part of the episode. Okay, let's find out. But I'm 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 very skeptical of this point. I mean, I'm also skeptical, but this is part of the episode. Okay. Yes. It's a critical part of the plot. So this this seems wildly implausible that Numenbari has apparently ever fucked an alien, but whatever. Um, we'll roll with it. He says that he just wants to understand her decision, not judge it, but he's also a smug bastard and nobody believes a word out of his mouth, including Delenn. She must apparently submit to the dreaming to discover the real reason for her actions, and once she emerges, she must obey her clan's ruling on whether the relationship can continue. Lanier agrees to serve as her second during the ritual, and the two each take a drink from an eerie smoking goblet before being locked in an equally eerie room filled with white fog. We learn that this is not Delenn's first time in the Dreaming. She was here before as second to the Mimbari leader Dukat when she was an acolyte. And then we apparently learn the true power of the Dreaming. To be a clip show! Uh, <laughs> wait, no, uh, to let you relive things from your past. Delenn first sees herself in the same chamber with Ducat as a terrified acolyte. Then the vision flips to him dead in her arms. And then our journey begins in earnest. Delenn's visions focus on her memories of Ducat. The first memory is of him summoning her in a corridor as an acolyte and bringing her before the Grey Council in order to scold them about their decision not to investigate or contact the humans. The council might be wise, but they lack the curiosity of Delenn, the simple acolyte. Next, he offers to make her his aid, since he apparently made her a complete pariah by bringing her in front of the Grey Council and putting her on the spot like that. So, you know, cool dude. Years later, we see Delenn's induction to the council herself, swearing the oath while holding her hand up to the Triluminary, which glows to the shock of the other council members. Afterward, Ducat joins Delenn in her quarters and begins to explain something about the Triluminary, but they're interrupted by an alarm. There's a fleet of unknown ships approaching, which Delenn recognizes as humans, based on her own research. 
The warrior cast his openly gun ports on the ship as a gesture of respect, and Ducat orders them closed as the council realizes that the humans aren't the only fleet here. There's also a small fleet of soul hunters, which are a very bad omen. Mm. But the order comes too late as the human fleet attacks. Ducat is struck down during the attack and dies in Delenn's arms, and when she ends up as the deciding vote between revenge and taking a breath on taking stock of the situation, she responds based off of her shock and grief. Attack and show no mercy. Later, she attempts to change her vote after realizing that her words were driven by grief and rage rather than logic. But again, it is too late. The war has become a holy war with all of the Mimbari united to annihilate the humans. Delenn and Lanier emerge from the dreaming, and he summarizes what he thinks Kalen's takeaway will be from it, that she is merely seeking absolution from her lingering guilt over her role in the war. Lanier does clarify that he doesn't believe this himself, but the clan will assume this to be the truth, and it's also a really bad reason to marry someone. The doors of the chamber open, and Kalen announces that the dreaming is over, and they'll discuss it in the morning. Delenn tries and fails to sleep, instead watching Ducat's death over and over in her mind. She notices something new, though. He was trying to tell her something just before his death, but she was unable to hear it at the time, in the chaos of the battle. She grabs Lanier and heads back to the dreaming. Kaladin tries to stop them, but Delenn urges him to join them inside and see the truth for himself. They return to the moment of Ducat's death and finally hear his words. There was a purpose in my selection of you, your heritage. You are a child of Valen. We cut to later that night, with Lanier appearing with an ancient scroll he stole from the council archives after apparently beating up some guards. <laughs> Delenn gives more context to the whole situation. When Valen came to the Mimbari, he didn't just form the council and defeat the shadows, he also got married and had kids. <laughs> but Valen wasn't pure Mimbari. He was part human due to his transformation. So there's been human DNA in the gene pool all this time. And the Trident Luminary glowed for Delenn because it was built for Sinclair and she's his great, 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 etc. granddaughter. Cool. The truth is thus revealed. It shouldn't matter if Delenn marries Sheridan because she wasn't pure Mimbari in the first place. And indeed, there are countless Mimbari walking around with just a smidge of Sinclair's DNA. Kalen admits to this and admits knowledge of this, but begs Delenn not to reveal the information since it would shake their society to its core, maybe to the point of civil war. That's some agro-xenophobia. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he has another explanation that they can use, though. In the in the distant past, when the Mimari still warred amongst themselves, there's a custom where the winning side would give a daughter to the losing tribe as a symbol of life and regrowth. They can simply paint it that and say that Delenn is filling this role and following the ancient tradition and being given to the humans as a sacrifice. Insert gagging noise here. <laughs> With all this sorted out, uh, Delenn returns to the station, greets John at customs, and tells him absolutely nothing about her trip, other than that everything's fine now, honey. <laughs> There's a few smatterings of other plot threads here, um, although like 95% of the action is in that A plot. Some of these matter and some don't, but they are all pretty fun. 
Uh, Jakar gets a new prosthetic eye from Franklin. Um, it's kind of a work in progress and has a blue human iris, but it works. So that's cool. And he's absolutely overjoyed and has no compunction about how weird and grossed out Franklin is when he's playing with it. Yeah, he can also, like, take it out of his head and look at himself. Yeah. And Fra- Franklin's like, don't do that. You'll get disoriented. And he's just like, hee Yeah. <laughs> we also have Franklin and Marcus being sent on a mission to Mars to liaise with the resistance there. Um, they unfortunately have to take the long way around to bypass the blockades. And we are blessed with a clip of Marcus driving Franklin absolutely insane on their long and uncomfortable voyage. Side note, I hope that none of us say what this is, and we just get Zathras to put it at the end of this episode. I can't. Um, we, have to, uh, we have to talk about it. We okay. have to talk about it. Okay, we yeah. have to talk about it. But, but, we have but to, Zathras we have to should Zathras put it at the end of the episode. Yes, yeah. Zathras should put the, the outro from Atonement at the end of this episode. Absolutely. We also have Zach Allen getting his new fancy uniform and being a jackass. And he gets a very large tailor's pin stuck in him as a punishment. Pig's gonna pig. Ivanova, as green leader of the Drazi, is invited to a big party, which apparently is extremely wild. And I wanted to know more about that. Yeah. Okay. The first thing we've got to talk about is (laughs) Ivanova got wink, right? (laughs) Absolutely. She's got the cane again from yeah, which from was when weird. She was green leader the first maybe, time? Maybe that's part of her role as green leader. Is she has to have the cane. I, I it's, mean, it's probably just to hit people with. it. I was just going to say it's like a ceremonial weapon now. It's part of her her green leader uh, regalia is is the cane still retaining the blood stains of from the, from the last time she was she wielded it. Gosh, and it's like it's funny because like. 90% of the things I want to talk of are not A-plot things. <laughs> well, let's get but let's get the A-plot out of the way and get to the yeah, important yeah, stuff. The Minbari are fucking stupid. They are. <laughs> they are. The Minbari do not lie, is the whole thing, right? <laughs> Except they do. Except, Except they do. No, they, Constantly. They don't lie. They just don't say shit. They just put all... They, they, they are the masters of secrets. They just like... Oh, Except for all those times that they do lie. Mostly by omission. I mean, True. like, it's like they have all this stuff they're just very secretive about. And they just let people assume the wrong thing. And it's like, oh, well, I didn't lie. I just didn't tell you that, you know, you were bleeding. Like, they just drive me nuts. Uh, I love the Minbari, don't get me wrong. But, like, as the show has gone on, it has become increasingly clear that much of the, like, mystique of the Minbari is like a complete goddamn facade. It's yeah. like their society is just as fucking weird and dumb as ours. They just don't talk about it. They ignore it completely. They're a society yeah. in denial about the fact that they are not like mystic space elves. They're in fact just fucking like anybody else. Delenn kind of actually says the reason in the next episode that, you know, there's the joke about, you know, that the Mimbari have a ritual for everything, so they don't really have to, like, think about their society because they have a ritual for everything. Yeah. Like, when in doubt, ritual. Yeah. No, it's true. Like, they are so formalized. I think that's a really excellent observation on her part. And I feel like I feel like this is one of the reasons why the Mimbari haven't really, as far as we can tell, like, other than Valen, you know, Valen was, you know... 
had big change and made the council and da 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 da. And then past that, they just, nothing has happened for the last thousand years in their society. They are a stagnated culture. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, this might be part of that is that, you know, they're just so steeped in like just formal ritual and like no, like change is so forbidden for them. Wow. Hey, guess what? We're going to have, we're going to have a headphones moment. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> dicks. <laughs> Thought we were past this point. The mm. shadow war is over. The need for headphones has passed. No, it hasn't. No, it hasn't. Which episode are we talking about? I'm not going to tell you that. Okay, because I'm like, I've, I'm a little bit ahead. <laughs> not not far enough. Activate gold channel one. <laughs> okay, that this is why I'm super irritated with the fact that the Minbari apparently like ascend to energy beings and the Narn don't. Because the Minbari are a bunch of stagnant doof butts who sit on their tail and do nothing. Meanwhile, the Narn are a vital, evolving species with people like Jakar out there trying to do better things in the world. And like, you look at these two examples and like, which of these two do you think is going to reach for the stars and try and find a better path forward? Which of these two is going to reach for the stars and try to fuck an alien? Exactly. Yes. And you know who it is? It's the Narn. The Narn. The Narn. Jakar in the way of the fuck is going to bring them to ascension rather than the Minbari who are going to sit there and do nothing. They're just going to sit there and eat red fruit all day. Right? Thank you. Clinking a little symbol. Yes. That's the end of my TED talk. (laughs) Justin hates us right now. Yeah. Sorry. I had to to, to post from the BabPod Twitter account to to fume. (laughs) (laughs) So at the same time, I, I feel like I actually love this episode. I'm really glad that I was the one to do the summary on it. Like Mm -hmm. as, as much as I'm like, Kellen is just like a complete jackass and I hate him. And there's so much like stupid Mimbari shit in here. But at the same time, I feel like this is like glitter on top of the bow on the plot that was War Without End. Yeah. Because Mm -hmm. it's tying up so many loose ends with Mimbari because we've got, you know, why are their souls merging? Maybe it's because like they're part human now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, they've joined their species. They're right. they're one species now, more or less. Yeah, so so we've got that. Like the we've got the thing where the triluminary glowed for Sinclair because he was fucking Valen. Yeah. Then glows for Delen because she's Valen's descendant, and then she's able to transform into a human because she's got some human DNA in there. Yeah. I feel like it it ties everything like I love this piece of writing like with the Mimbari rituals bullshit aside like it ties a really nice bow on like that like five different subplots that have never made any sense yeah now it's like everything comes together and it really yeah and through the lens of ducat it really like illuminates how a lot of this stuff all happened it like you said it takes all these plot threads that have kind of been there and needed a little bit of resolution and it connects them all via delen's reminiscence of ducat which yeah. is kind of how, which which was all the, the connective tissue there. Yeah. Um, I also would like to point out that this perfectly explains why John has such an immediate uh, hard on for Delenn because she's a war criminal too. Yep. 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 
Yeah, like, she's was, not exactly. Um, but I, I yeah, it's uh, I, no. I she's like a war criminal. Like, oh, yeah, she is like, sitting there on the floor screaming, "Kill them all!" Yeah, I mean, I've you got, can change your mind, but you can't wash the blood out. Yeah, yeah, I've got in the notes here. You know, so Justin, do you remember that thing you said about war crimes? And we were like, "Oh, buddy, just you wait." Yeah, well, because you so, were like, Delenn can't be a war criminal too." No, can no, she? I called this. I called this back in season one. Yeah. <laughs> I said and, all my faves turned out to either be dead or war criminals. And we we fucking kept it quiet. This is like the boring kind of war criminal of like she didn't actually like execute anything. She just like start the war. She didn't say she, like she certainly at least views herself as a war criminal. Yeah. She's like the most boring type of war criminal, which is just any <laughs> member of Congress. <laughs> Okay, I'm trying to look this up right now because I'm curious. Okay, okay, that's what I had to check because I was like, I wasn't sure where, because uh, Ducat's actor has a wonderful accent. Uh, yeah, side note, I love Ducat. He's so good. He's, he's a fantastic character, uh, which I just checked his name. Uh, oh, I'm gonna, we're gonna butcher this name. I apologize to this actor because he's apparently still alive. Uh, is Reiner Scone? Uh, and he's from Germany. Oh, yeah. There you go. Interesting. Yeah. He's fantastic. Ducat's fantastic. It's a very nice German accent that is not the typical Hollywood type, which is, I mean, it's sort of like, it's a nice, like, thing of, like, I, I like the, like, Central European accents for yeah. them in Mark. He sounds like an actual German, not a Nazi extra, is what you're saying. Yeah. And it dovetails with Delenn's accent nicely as well. Yeah. 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 One of my favorite bits in this episode is Delenn's line to Lanier in the first episode. Mm-hmm. I cannot be. I cannot have an aide that is constantly looking mm-hmm. at the ground. You'll forever be bumping into things or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Is exactly what Ducat said to her. Yeah, is, and it's like this. She learned how to be a mentor from the best. Yeah, it's such a good line, and the, the parallels are here. So. There's so many parallels between Ducat and Delenn. Like, yeah, at the end of this episode where she's leading them both into the dreaming and saying Ducat's lines of, you know, there's nothing to fear here except what we bring with us. Yeah. Um, it's just so good. Yeah. I have I have a side thing that I just love about this episode, which mm-hmm. is that it, it's the most buckwild structure because it is a clip show of clips we've never seen. Yeah. That was a great observation <laughs> that it's a clip show of clips we've never seen. That's right. Yeah. It's um, true though. It is. I do I do like that we get like the return to like baby delight. Like she looks like it's just the make- makeup because I assume he, like mm-hmm. it's not like they shot these up ep- these scenes back yeah. in 1994. You can't do that. That's bullshit. Um yeah. Yeah. but it's like they've got her back in the original prosthetics and she just looks so much younger. Yeah. Yeah. It's and wild. They've, they've changed the I mean the writing the writing has changed so drastically. Yeah. So they couldn't have shot these back then because yeah. The, the plot, the, this plot didn't exist back then. Yeah, no, they, he, in the JMS speaks on uh, Lurker's Guide, JMS mentions that it like blew his mind to see her back in the makeup. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. Other fun, there's other, there's a, another hilarious line. The JMS speaks for this episode is fucking buck wild. Like, there's nothing about like the, how, how nonsense this, dreaming ritual is and it's all about valen like the whole thing is about valen and sinclair but there's one line there's one question that drove me nuts won't sheridan be upset when he finds out delenn ordered the war 
I'm sorry. I think you misspelled deliriously aroused <laughs> because I think that's actually, in fact, the reaction that he's going to have when he finds out that the woman he's marrying is, in fact, as much a war criminal as he is. That's all I've got. Yeah, on, on a more serious note, I think I think that he probably would be upset to find out, but I don't think that it would break their relationship. Like, I think they each understand that they've each done things that, you know, yeah. had to be done or not necessarily had to be done, but, you know, seemed yeah. like a good idea at the time. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. You know, responding to, you know the death of your mentor slash leader slash father figure with, you know, with rage and grief is not entirely unreasonable. Yeah. But. Out, but of, also, out of ignorance too. She didn't know yeah. what, what the humans meant. She, you know, they were just butthole aliens. I think she also maybe didn't think of like her words and the downstream implications of like, show them no mercy kill them all that's going to oh yeah absolutely not she's not not she's, you know match a fleet but an entire species yeah all right are, can we talk about the best part of this episode now absolutely which what is the best part of the episode we have multiple candidates here i don't think anyone's going to question my credentials when it comes to jakar subplots but for once i am not referring to jakar's childlike love of a prosthetic eyeball <laughs> is a, an interesting line I never thought I'd say. No, in point of fact, I am referring to, I can't believe I actually love a subplot involving fucking Franklin, but ha, yeah. supper, supper, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> but Franklin and goddamn Marcus on that ship is so good. And Marcus playing with his, his, yeah. Oh my god, it's so funny. The two of them are so funny together. And they're in zero G too. That is that's the best part. Yeah. <laughs> they're yeah. just suffering. Yeah. And then the best part of this episode where Marcus I just want to say the very best part of this episode. I was so overjoyed that I got to watch this episode with Justin and get Justin's reaction to it live. Because it was absolutely amazing. I wish I had had the foresight to go like capture it out of the logs or something like that. Cause it just such shock and joy. It was so good. When Marcus busts into Gilbert and Sullivan. Yes. It's, it's so fucking funny. It's such a weird thing to do. And it comes out of goddamn nowhere. Like, it's not like they're talking about Gilbert and Sullivan. It's not like they're right, having... No. no, it's the stupid thing you do when you're on a long road trip and you're at, like, the tape decks bus yeah. in. But it's like, yeah, no, it's the, it's the silly thing you do with, like, there's no there's no radio that you can find that is, like, gun. Nobody's got a CD or something, and it's just, like, somebody's just like, I'm gonna sing show tunes. And everyone in the car is like, if you start singing show tunes, we will fucking kick you out of this car in the middle of this cornfield. <laughs> And then, and then you all realize it is the person driving who's about to sing the show tunes. Yeah. Bluff called Gilbert and Sullivan time. Yeah. I just love it. And this is, this is the start of a good arc for Franklin. Like, he's actually good. Yeah. It's one of those things of just like, characters can be good on their own, but it's, it is really about the characters you pair them off with. Yeah. And it, it, part of it is just like Franklin for 
two and a half seasons languished down in med lab doing nothing. Right. But like having weird relationships and interacting with Garibaldi. And like now that he's like getting like you, yeah. you put him with the most charismatic member of this cast. And he, he's got a purpose now. He's getting to see the action. He's part of the main the main plot at this point. Yeah. Yeah. This is like this is what you're supposed to do with ensemble casts. Yeah. This is why JMS never wrote team books. <laughs> I I really love the 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 banter between the two of them. And uh I wanna point out that the actor who plays Marcus has on occasion performed this song at conventions. So if you go on mm-hmm. YouTube and you and you search for it. I think I did. I not send you the the one I found. You have Justin? not sent me this. Um, there is one of him from like in the last couple of years, a aged like a fine wine, Marcus, <laughs> doing this at a convention. And I can't believe I didn't send it to you. It's it's like fucking catnip for you. I'm looking this up now. Oh, it's Space City Comic Con 2014. Yeah, he's fantastic, and I love that he embraces it as well and he's still got it like he still manages to pull it off it sounds yeah. like it's been a few years since he's done since he's sung it and he still manages to nail it is this just a thing that like all british people could do <laughs> <laughs> is that like just like I, I'm, I'm gonna ask you is like do, do you just have like gilbert and sullivan like genetically in your blood of just like you could do this on command is this something all British people can do? British people, please write into us. Let us know what show tune you can perform automatically off the top of your head. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's that's all I got. That's it. I I have a couple of other small notes. Um, the first is that Kalen, the the like leader of the clan, has big Sebastian energy. Yeah. He does. He sounds like him. And and it's the same question of like, well, perhaps. You are marrying him at the wrong time for the wrong reasons and in the wrong way. Maybe or you whatever should the... just shut the fuck up. Maybe it's yeah. none of your business. But that's not how the Minbari work. As we're going to see in the next episode, there's no such thing as none of your goddamn business with the Minbari. <laughs> yeah. There's uh, the, uh, the other note I have for this one is that the Minbari have that chalice and yet they say they've never heard of the Holy Grail. What the fuck? That's a great observation. I did not connect that, but that's super true. They should totally have been like, yes. Would you like some of this, you know, strange fog? Yeah. Would you you like our weird cup? By the way, that is a weird looking cup. I will just say. It's just like, it's it's got like two like weird like angles on it. It's like how... It's not as bad as the Centauri like... (laughs) Bavari cups. Bejeweled <laughs> relic. Everything they make for yeah, the Centauri it, looks like a like a cheap tchotchke. It looks like a, a reject from the, you know, what a workshop stuff for Lothlorien yeah. or something. <laughs> yeah, it looks like a rough draft for some for, for an elf uh artifact from Weta, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. For this episode, they really went all out on the fog machine budget. Like, it was Yeah. It's like it's like, wow, which wrestling promotion was in town that you stole these from? Because <laughs> <laughs> it's like a wall-to-wall fog machine in there. We asked this question on Twitter. Well, not so much broadly asked the question, but Justin and I were joking on Twitter the other day. And I asked the question, 
Who on Babylon 5 watches wrestling? And after they're cut off from Earth and can no longer get wrestling on ISN, on, on ISN or on Babcom or whatever they call it, who starts their own underground wrestling <laughs> circuit in Down Below? Ivanova. I, I feel like Ivanova, like, yeah, like Ivanova. So so I can like, I can like, I can identify which members of the cast or, or which which characters will, will like think it is, enjoy it. Ivanova definitely enjoys it. She likes stiff wrestling. No, she's probably, she like, she's probably a fan of whatever Joshi wrestling evolved to in the 23rd century, <laughs> which is for real quick. Joshi is like wi- Japanese women's wrestling, which is like very like, it's a specific style. You can look it up on YouTube. It's cool. Marcus probably, probably doesn't understand it at first, but gets into it because it's about, it's, it's theater. It's theater. That's what it is. Yeah. I think Franklin is a, Franklin is a wrestling fan. And I and I think once the Centauri learn about it, they get all into it. Yeah, that was that would have been my my thing. It's like no matter who else is into it, the Centauri are the ones that go way overboard with it. Like among the Centauri, wrestling goes to a new level. And when it when it comes time to set up their own wrestling, uh, uh, when when a a gap in the market appears. For wrestling, the unlikely Vince McMahon of the BWE is Veer. Okay. Veer, Veer is not Veer is not Vince McMahon. Uh, Veer is um, Tony Khan. I don't know who that is. I just know Vince McMahon because I grew up in the nineties. Um, I know nothing about wrestling, so shrug. I mean, I'm just saying that Veer is the one who like Londo tells him to do it, but I want to see the episode where Veer is like. <laughs> in charge of this, this wrestling of this wrestling t- setup this and- is the version of tko we deserve yes 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 this is what i'm saying see come on jms hire us for the remake um, god we'd be so good at that we would fucking crush a remake of b5 i'm just saying we would be great uh like i've never <laughs> read this script before be but i would trash do. but it would be good trash <laughs> why did you spend uh, an entire season on nothing but kissing and wrestling because we're making quality television. I was going to say, I don't understand the question. Michael has a joke that he would like to share with the podcast, which okay. is that clearly the the Mimbari are just hotboxing in the Dreaming Chamber. <laughs> I mean, that makes more sense than anything, any other explanation for it that I've seen. Do we have anything else that we want to cover for this one? Anna? Nothing from me. That was, that was cool. my last bullshit remark. Okay, my last bullshit remark is now that I've listened to Duc- the name Ducat being said for the last 45 minutes, all I have to say is all I do in stealing this candy from a baby is for the security of Cardassia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why do these two shows have the same fucking it's name? It's so funny for me. So next up uh, for our second episode tonight, we are doing season four, episode 10, Racing Mars. Written by J. Michael Straczynski and directed by Jesus Trevino. Hello, I'm Justin, and we're here to talk about my new ship. I mean, uh, Racing Mars. <laughs> we're here to talk about an entire episode and not just my new ships. <laughs> uh, plural, by the way. I want to make sure we get that. Plural. Ships. We start off with our A-plot, with Sharon explaining to Ivanova that they are getting dangerously low in supplies, and they may only have months left before they run out of food, and they may start running out of repair uh, parts much sooner. 
The black market may not even be an option, as the risk may be too much, though Ivanovus insists that she can take care of it. Heck, she straight up relieves John of duty, telling him to take a break. She needs him to take a day, as he hasn't taken a day off in nine months, even for his death. Even for either of his deaths. (laughs) When John asks who taught her to be so aggressive in negotiations, she replies that he did. Unfortunately, Sheridan's vacation is not starting great because all the channels, even the porn, is blacked out, apart from the ISN report on Babylon 5. After re-watching the Garibaldi interview, Sheridan confronts him. He says that he can't understand where all of Garibaldi's frustration is coming from, but Michael shrugs him off. Garibaldi says that he's become too powerful, that he is assembling a cult. Sheridan refuses to let this interfere with the cause and tells him to keep it to himself. Garibaldi meets with his uh, co-conspirators, whatever these folks are, and they discuss the blow with Sheridan, and they want him to spy on Sheridan to save other people. Garibaldi, however, refuses to betray the cause. Ivanova meets with several smugglers, wondering why they haven't come in lately, she says, oh so sweetly. (laughs) Ivanova suggests that they start working more closely with Babylon 5, bringing in food, medicine, spare parts. She offers escorts and mechanics in exchange for their help, and promises not to cause, quote-unquote, accidents for them in the future. (laughs) If they go clean and work for Babylon 5, they'll be supplied. The smugglers agree. Sheridan and Delenn meet in the garden, and Delenn has another fucking ritual for John. <laughs> yeah, she does. John is very impatient, <laughs> saying, come on, please, I just want to get hitched. How many more? And she's like, ah, oh, maybe 50. <laughs> but this ritual is called Shanfal, the third ritual of preparation understanding. This is about discovering each other's pleasure centers. Respectfully worshipfully to make sure they are compatible john's mood takes a turn for the better see it's it's not another fucking ritual it's another fucking ritual we're gonna do this a little bit out of order John goes to apologize to Garibaldi, but as he does, an alien woman comes to John asking for a blessing. Garibaldi seizes the woman and shakes her like a prick and john tries to separate them but garibaldi punches him john says that michael won't ever get a shot like that again at him garibaldi meets with the conspirators from earlier and he believes that sheridan needs to be taken out john then goes to visit delenn for the ritual where a lot of minbari are there to wait outside and observe john protests that he cannot with outside observers but he eventually relents the next morning uh john gets into the lift linear just has one questioning word. Woohoo. <laughs> Sidebar. Side Who the fuck says woohoo while banging? Sheridan is a, <laughs> is a stereotype of every like white, bland 90s dad. <laughs> so that's who. Like yeah. the dad from every like sitcom in the 90s. That's who. And that's who Sheridan is. Our B-plot, however, let's finish there. Our journey with Marcus and Franklin begins on their transport ship with their plague, I Spy. Franklin is clearly not having it. It's fucking cute. However, they find that they have a, a spy in their mists. He's another stowaway who says that he's a friend of the transport's captain. He introduces himself as Captain Jack. No, not that one. <laughs> not that one. And no, not that other one. <laughs> 
Marcus, playing to the role of spy, tells Jack to stay away from them, but Jack tries to convince them using food. Marcus warns Franklin off. However, as Franklin and Marcus fumigate, Captain Jack says their passphrase to verify he is their contact. Captain Jack gives them their identicars, but informs them that their resources are limited, so they will have to... <sighs> Pose the fucking married couple on honeymoon. Bitch, I could not make this up. JMS, please report to the Hague Memorial Court for war crimes. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot. I am beyond comprehension here. Like, this is like the minute I heard this. My brain exploded and I became the galaxy brain meme. <laughs> it was very good. Another episode that we watched uh, on stream and it was it was very good. A highlight. These two episodes watching the end of the last episode and then this part right here. Easily like a top five Babylon project moment for me <laughs> in this project. It was... Um, <laughs> they get to Mars eventually. Well, um, like the rest of the episode is pointless, but, the, you know, we'll keep going. They get to Mars, where Captain and Jack explains that the Mars Resistance thought that the Captain had left them on their own, as no one knew about the Shadow War, with Clark's uh, information quarantine working overtime. Marcus is very flabbergasted that he is a war hero for a war no one knows about. <laughs> they head into the caves under Mars, where they are met by a bunch of people pointing guns. They take Marcus and Franklin into custody, where the leader of the fire team introduces himself as number two. Where is number two? Well, well we will get to this reference momentarily. <laughs> and he thinks that they are an assassination squad from Earth. The Resistance didn't get the identities of who was supposed to arrive from B5, so they take their identity cards and use them to verify their identities. As they wait around, Captain Jack talks about his daughter, who just had her birthday. As they talk, Franklin starts to notice something suspicious with Jack. And when number two comes in, he declares they're both imposters and their IDs were fakes. Number one, a very pretty blonde woman, uh, we can see where this is going, y'all, arrives. And just as they're about to make a move to kill Marcus and Franklin, uh, Jack pulls a PPG. Someone shoots Jack and something moves off of him, a tentacled creature slipping away. Jack stumbles away, grievously wounded. Franklin takes a look at a cre at the creature in a lab and recognizes it as a parasite that latches onto its host's neural system. Number one and number two realize, oh wait, we got tricked, and they start to trust Marcus and Franklin. One of the Resistance members reports in that Jack went topside and he stole a thermal grenade in the process. Number one calms Jack and tries to convince him to come back, but he says that his cover has been blown and it's too late. He says that even if most of the creature is gone, it will grow back. As a tentacle starts to slide over him, he detonates the grenade. After that all is sorted out, number one reports that the Mars resistance leaders are going to meet to speak with Franklin and Marcus, and that Marcus and Franklin have had hotels booked for them. Number one asks Franklin out for dinner, and we are informed that Marcus and Franklin were given the honeymoon suite. <laughs> That's that's the episode. You left out my favorite part of this episode in your summary. This is this is why my summaries go long because I can't leave out like the good because this bits. is because we're gonna talk about them now. Yeah, well, I that's just, why. just I yeah. just talk about them in the episode. In the summary. yeah, but, but then we, but then you're you're the only one who's talking. Then yeah, you're the only one who's talking for forty five minutes. 
I mean, I can't deny that. That's about how long my summaries take. When Marcus and Franklin are on the tram with Captain Jack, and he's discussing their backstory, and yeah. <laughs> Marcus is just like super into it. And like, like that's not what your mother said. Yeah, he's just like he's just riffing and and coming up with backstory and like details. And fucking Franklin is just like, uh, this is my life. I I am a war hero for a war that nobody knows about, and I'm stuck with this this idiot. And <laughs> the banter is so good. Like, I don't care about the rest of it. I just want these two to keep. Like riffy, yeah, and and Franklin is is decent once he has like a purpose and and like you know, hey, he's the xenobiologist person, so like it makes sense for him to look at the like fucking weird mind parasite thing. Yeah, mm. it, remarkably, when there's no one for him to commit gross ethical violations on, Franklin is an entirely acceptable character. Yeah, and and if he's you know fucking number one here then like there's no the power differential if anything goes the other way yeah there you go they've solved the problem of franklin by pairing him with people with whom he doesn't have gross ethical violations all you need to do with franklin is pair him with like you know people who could just like step on him that seems like a different kind of show I love that this is now the second time we've seen the brain-controlling dick monster. I don't know what you want to call these guys. Tentacle, brain, eyeball thingies. Well, I'm not yeah. sure that it's the same thing, though. It doesn't look like it. I'm, like, reasonably... I mean, It was what far a- more squid-like. Yeah, it was It was a lot more like a face hugger than it. Like, it had it, different like in design. Yeah. My assumption was that it was the same thing. Uh, is that it was the same thing as, as that we see on Londo in the future, and that the same thing that... Uh, is on the the current prime minister, uh, Centauri. Very possibly, it, it does have different foley, though. I gotta say, yeah, very possibly. Um, but that was my assumption because it's a weird thing with tentacles that attaches to somebody and controls their actions. So I just sort of assumed it was the same monster, but maybe it's different. Yeah, I sort of just got the vibe; it was different. That was yeah. that, that was like it didn't feel like the same monster. Right. Um, I do wish that Jack had gone back because I feel like I feel like Franklin could have actually potentially gotten that thing out of him, but like also, yeah, it seems yeah. to have grown back very swiftly. Yeah, which seems like a, a thing that they would have on on that eyeball monster. Like if you can, if you can get it drunk enough to make it pass out, you'd have to like you'd have to have a way for it to like not be removable. So anyway, yeah, that part's cool. I. I the Mars resistance doesn't seem we're going to get into this more in the future, <laughs> but the Mars resistance is not giving me a lot of confidence. Yeah. I mean, it just does sort of seem like that this is the, it seems amateur hour is, is what it seems like. Yeah. I mean, it really feels like that the Mars resistance has already taken a couple blows. It's sort of running on fumes. And I mean, like, they've been doing this for a year with, like, no support. Yeah. I just, I think it's also by comparison, like, Marcus and Franklin literally just defeated the oldest beings. They didn't, they didn't do fuck all. Marcus did a little bit. Give Marcus some credit. But Franklin did nothing but commit ethical violations in the background. Franklin defeated his inner demons, Jude. Franklin Franklin fought the most important battle, which was at our arts. No. No. 
Franklin did fuck all. Franklin sat at the CPK table of whatever and did nothing except be confused. But he was there. Literally, they just saved the galaxy from annihilation by the two oldest races around. And Marcus helped and Franklin watched. And then they get to Mars and it's like, and then there's these guys and they're like amateur hour shit. <laughs> so uh, I think it may be a, 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 a question of changing the scope and the scale of the conflict. And I think it actually works because from a meta standpoint, the show is changing its scope. The show has gone from this grand galactic standpoint down to smaller problems. Yeah. And by framing it the way that they're framing it, they, they, they make that change a part of the narrative in a way that kind of works. Yeah. And I think that that's, you know, one of the reasons why early season four has some growing pains, shall we say, is, yeah. you know, in addition to all the stuff we've talked about with it being compressed from two seasons into one, et cetera, you know, that shift in scope from like, you know, most shows escalate and escalate and escalate and escalate as you keep going, especially shows of that era, you know, comparing to something like Buffy. Yeah. And to de-escalate and like go back and do, you know, taking care of the Shire, et cetera is um not something that's not something that you see a lot in tv at that point yeah this was a surprisingly tight episode it's a lot of fun it's um yeah it's cute like there it, it, there's there's not a lot of heavy stuff however i do want to bring something up okay so this this might be my most nuclear take Uh oh let's hear it i don't think marcus and franklin is the best ship that comes out of this episode. Interesting. Let's hear it. So, may I present to you Ivanova and that smuggler lady who was using a knife as a hairpin. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) They had chemistry. Like, like, I'm pretty sure they've dated and that woman has stabbed Ivanova. (laughs) And it probably happened on the same night. (laughs) Yeah. They have some knowing looks. I love I love that piece of the episode where Ivanova's like, we will take care of your ships. We've got the best maintenance staff and you've got you'll get parts because you're smuggling in the parts and everything will be great. And I'll you you also if you don't sign on, we've got a really big plasma cannon and we'll repair your <laughs> ships and it will be fantastic. <laughs> yeah. It's a fun scene. And it's also it's also something that like only Ivanova could get away with, right? Like Sheridan yeah. couldn't I don't think that that scene would work for Sheridan. No, cuz Sheridan only has two modes, dad and war criminal. And <laughs> Ivanova, however, has a lo- like Ivanova's like default me- mode of leadership is devious. Uh, well, well, yeah, devious, but also like a a fine balance between threat and diplomacy. Like, yeah, that's her whole style. So it figures that when she's a diplomat, she also a- applies as much threat as she does enticement. Yeah. She's got a stick made of carrots, and that's how she gets you to do what she wants. I really appreciate that they used the leftover dry ice from uh, the goblet <laughs> from last episode to make those, like, horrifying holographic dry ice beef packets. <laughs> 
at once they, they they sound disgusting, but at the same time as somebody who like generally eats pretty disgusting food occasionally because I'm a goblin of just like I want those. <laughs> I want to just like rip open a back edge and have some beef stroganoff. Yeah, I want some fucking beef stroganoff in a Ziploc <laughs> with the dry ice. With with the dry ice though, it's yeah. got to it's got to have the fog. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I have a take about the Minbari Sean Fall. Uh, one, there's no way that this is not big, big green night energy there. Yeah. Uh, one, there's no way that this is not a dig on pond far. It sounds too similar <laughs> Two, I refuse to believe it's real. Um, <laughs> I don't believe that the Minbari have time for an entire like group of them to stand around watching their family members fuck all the time. How, like, there's no, like, how do these guys get anything done? I think it's only at the beginning of a relationship though. So what if you're, what if you've got a cousin that like can't lock it down and you just like, you got to spend like one night, a, one night a month watching them like awkwardly f- fumble around with someone in bed. This, this is why they've got the, the ritual of like watching the person sleep for three nights, right? That's, that's the, the first hurdle. Okay. What if your cousin is very comfy, very, very cuddly, but then when it comes time to do the deed... They're just like grossly incompetent. So here's my here's my theory on this. I think it is something you only do after you're engaged. <laughs> Counterpoint. Like, because I think they're trolling the human. I mean, it's possible, but I don't think. But Deli- also, I, no, also I, like I don't think Lanier would like voluntarily watch that. That's a fair point. Yeah, that's the best point you've come up with so far. <laughs> but it's it to me. It had the like kind of medieval-ish vibe of like. You know the yeah that you know you'd have for for um people who had sufficient status you know the the watching the being king consummated be yeah. watched yeah um yeah that was actually the vibe I got my 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 actual real take on this is it very much seems like the sort of thing that they don't bother with with like Jack and Jill Minbar it's more of a thing that they do with people of sufficient station that it matters what they, the partner they pick, but maybe not. Maybe rank doesn't matter with Minbari. Yeah. That's, I I thought I had something else and I was going to say, oh yeah, Garibaldi sucks. I thought that making him not a pig would make him less annoying because then he could just be straight up an antagonist. But it turns out that I hate him just as much as an antagonist as I did when he was supposedly one of the good guys. He's just as annoying, except now he's a, now he's QAnon garibaldi as opposed to cop garibaldi and that's just as annoying so yeah not into it i find him reasonably compelling as an antagonist the one thing i have with this episode with garibaldi is like okay for one thing like john like you knew that this wouldn't go well like a why did you go down there to see him and b why did you go down there to see him again because he's an idiot the two of them like here and there have some decent points but just like completely fail to communicate with each other yeah but also is this the first time that john has been friend dumped (laughs) it might be (laughs) because he he just can't seem to like grasp this thing of like but you were my best friend and you're not my best friend anymore and i I think this doesn't compute so so i i'm gonna put a, a plausible thing here i don't think john has ever had somebody like just like go heel turn on him because I because like John's a military person, so like 
like the way his like his friendships usually end is he gets transferred somewhere and he just like they slowly just stop communicating. Like that's how that's how it works. Yeah, and that's then, a fair point. But like, but he's never had like somebody who's like I I don't think he's ever had anybody who's just like no I don't want you in my life anymore. Fuck off. Yeah, and I think it could be something of like I don't know how to process this, and I want to you know I want to know what I did wrong so I can make this better because that's the kind of person John is. Yeah, and Garibaldi is saying no, just fuck off. Would he try and? Garibaldi's like, I don't need a reason. Fuck off, basically. That's really what he is. He's just like, he he's like, I think I have this image of you now, and I can't remove it because I'm brainwashed. Um, I mean, that's what's going yeah. on here. I'm being facetious, but it's. Uh, <laughs> please don't, please don't send your angry tweets at me, people. Um, <laughs> um, but it's it is like you know he's just like I don't want you in my life anymore. Please stop. And John is just like I do not know how to comprehend this. You, you bring up the brainwashing and like, on the one hand, absolutely, this is the brainwashing. But also, I feel like the brainwashing is so compelling for Garibaldi because like, he did have that like, underlayer of like, bitterness and, you know, jackassery and fascism. Yeah, the thing about the, the brainwashing with Garibaldi is it, it works as a storyline because everybody believes, nobody is suspicious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. About it. Everybody's like, oh, Garibaldi joined QAnon? Yeah. Mm-hmm. 100%. Nobody thinks like, oh, he must have been brainwashed into it. Like, everybody believes that he would just do it. And that's what makes his descent into uh, antagonism so believable. Yeah. And compelling. Um, still annoying, but compelling. I also appreciate that the the Sheridan arc has improved from its like rough start at the beginning of the season. Yeah. We're we're not quite to the like chef kiss awkward pining of season 3. Yeah. But they they've got the fun vibe back where they're yeah. like joking yeah. with each other and being silly and being awkward and like that's what makes that ship work. It's them both yeah. being like fucking dorks. Uh we have to talk about this. Proving the proving the like incompetency of the Mars resistance movement. They have just decided that they are going under the prisoner rules for naming. <laughs> I I just wanted them to say like, I'm number two. Who is number one? <laughs> you are and just say to like, Marcus, you are number six. I'm not a number. I'm a free man. <laughs> there are a couple of details from this episode that are kind of interesting. So there's a there's a quip from Garibaldi that I do enjoy where um he says to the the woman who's you know hassling Sheridan for a blessing which is like come on come on lady worst timing ever he has a line of he's not the pope he doesn't look anything like her mm-hmm. which it's so good. which is great i really uh, enjoy that intentional and- uh, J- in the JMS speaks, he says he did that intentionally to piss off the religious right that had been on his case about earlier episodes. And speak speaking of which, uh, I remember that the the thing of Marcus and um, Franklin being you know fake married and like it's it's played off for a joke, but not not a homophobic joke. It's played off as a fake married joke. Yeah, there's no yeah. there's no friction at all about the fact that they're both men. It's entire the. All the joke in that is that Marcus is a is an absolute goddamn goblin about it. 
There's yeah. zero mention about the fact that they're both men. It's entirely about the fact that Marcus is just a complete troll and Franklin is not at all amused by the fact that he doesn't get to be a war hero. <laughs> and I, I remember that being just pretty groundbreaking at the time, honestly. Yeah. I'm um, considering this is, you know, we're still in the late 90s here. Yeah. And like having having all of the jokes regarding that hilarious scenario being like Marcus, you know, improving off of, you know, the wedding decorations and not like, oh, no, if we have to share a bed, our dicks might touch. Yeah. Well, especially when you consider that, like, I'm thinking about Scrubs because I have been watching a shit ton of Ted Lasso. And that was that's a great show in a lot of ways. But it also has like some weird homophobia in it, considering oh, yeah. like how gay that th- those two guys are. <laughs> um, yeah. And there's like a, a, a scene in like, I think it's the first season where they talk about sleeping like head to foot. So like their bits can't interlock. And it's like that was in like the early 2000s. That was like 10 years later and they were making that joke. And meanwhile, in like 96, 97 or something, you've got Franklin and and Marcus, like you got Marcus gleefully talking about wedding decorations and meeting Franklin's mother and like no mention whatsoever of the fact that they're both men. It's very refreshing. Yeah. JMS, we we dunk on JMS a lot. Uh, Like 85, 90% of it deservedly, thereabouts. Uh, but I think we, I believe we can fairly say that his, he's extremely consistent in this show uh, about showing the future is in this one thing <laughs> better, more, yeah. more accepting, uh, you know. Yeah, as a sidebar, it's really interesting comparing the, the JMS, you know, brighter future to the Roddenberry brighter future. Where just the things that the things that are being focused on are so different. Like, you know, instead of focusing on like you know, the you know, you're in a post scarcity utopia, et cetera, but like, you know, we're still homophobic for no good reason. Um, instead it's like totalitarian government, to- but yeah, nobody totalitarian- cares if you're gay. Right, right. <laughs> Which I think is both better and more likely, frankly. Yeah, yeah. Are we, does anybody have anything else about this episode? Um, I mean, it's just a good vibes episode, honestly. Yeah. This is like a comfort TV episode of this show. My last thing is adult channel unavailable due to jamming. (laughs) I forgot about that. Oh, Jesus. I love, I love when TV fails to accurately account for the internet. Yeah. We can, this this might get cut out. I don't care. William Gibson, uh, author of Neuromancer, who basically started cyberpunk. Yeah, this is the one that can't be classified as cyberpunk because it, you know, be, because it started the genre, right? Yeah. He has famously said that his book would be over in like two chapters if he, if cell phones existed. And like, he, he talks a lot about like, one of the difficulties in sci-fi is like, trying to predict technology and how one of the hardest parts of sci-fi is writing writing a story where it doesn't matter if you fuck that up. Yeah. And I, which I think is super accurate. And he's like, I'm not that good of a writer. That's why I mostly write near future fiction these days because I'm not that talented anymore. But I think it's really interesting when you look at 
far future sci-fi like this. I mean, uh, putting aside the dumb the dumb stuff like nylon and Nutrigrain bars and Zima. That's right. The Nutrigrain bars came back in this one. Yeah. The fact that fucking they're like they have these like perma speaker mode voice only doodly does on their hands. And that's like I remember thinking that was pretty fucking like that I seems mean, just pretty a Star Trek legit. communicator, but up their hand. Yeah, but I th- I remember thinking that yeah. was like, yeah, that seemed pretty high tech. And then like these days, I've got a slab of glass in my pocket that is more powerful than probably every computer in the Babylon Five universe put together. I don't need no fucking Babcom. There's so much porn on the internet that <laughs> if Earth shuts us off, I'm sure Mars. Every planet, there's no way there is not some kid in down below running a very comprehensive porn outfit. All you need to do is talk to the fucking Centauri. Right? Or the Centauri. The Centauri, I'm sure, collect plenty of Earth porn. No, Mr. Garibaldi. This is, this is a drama. Yeah. It's just interesting. You look at the way science fiction has tried to like project how technology is going to be used in the future, and especially those... The sci-fi sort of before and during the early days of, like, personal computing. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, wow, how badly they missed the train. Anyway. Well, and Babylon 5 computing really feels like it is just the Usenet era, but in space. Because you've got, you know, clearly you've got, like, you know, some basically email capabilities. um, But the the real-time aspect is not there. not really there. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good that's a good observation. Anyway, that was all. I was just offended by the idea that Sheridan couldn't have porn on demand. <laughs> I mean, it's more just like that that everything is running off Earth like technology. And basically Clark has just bricked the entire Earth communications network. Yeah. But they yeah. can get like they can get like the Ivanova the Ivanova briefings out. Like, can't they get the Centauri porn out? That's what I'm saying. Uh, who knows? I mean, it's probably like a very low priority considering how much bandwidth it's got to take up. Disagree. Like basically what it is. is Disagree. I, Do you so, know humans? I mean, if, if Sheridan had had some porn, he would not have gone down there and antagonized Garibaldi. So, like, I mean, it, it's basically said that, like, for interstellar communications, you have to use specific networks, like, specific networks. And it is, it's addressed in an upcoming episode that it is very resource intensive to broadcast interstellar. Okay, fine. So, so they and, could have within, within the station, right? Yeah, that's like, my point, is maybe well, not interstellar. You've got to get content in somewhere. And this is my point, is there's no way that Bab- B5 itself does not have an internal network that is abundant with Every species is these porn that he could not just be like, hey, Google, show me the Centauri porn or whatever. Like, I, I, I do not agree. But we've already determined that's not how that's not how computers work in B5. Well, and I'm just saying it, it's dumb. I'm, I'm just saying that he's the captain of goddamn Babylon 5. And if he wants porn, I don't think it's wrong that he that he has to go to some sort of like Earth sanctioned source of pornography. He rebelled from Earth. Free the man from Earth-based porn and give him some inter- some intergalactic diversity. I mean just just broadly, like how are I, I how love is this there conversation, not just like a Centauri way. a Centauri soap opera channel. 
Right. Like, that's just local to Babylon Five. That like that like Londo just has a has a Plex server. <laughs> I'm gonna guess that it's like they probably haven't had the time. <laughs> Uh, again, like, again, I could not disagree. I could not disagree with you more, Justin. I have worked in a lot of internet companies since like 1994, and there are two things that crop up on any internal network as soon as it's up and running: a Quake server and porn. <laughs> Every time. I mean, are we even sure that the B5 computer is going to run Doom? I mean, hey, somebody somebody taught a uh, IKEA light to play Doom. So, I, I, right, that's what I'm saying. Is that like, are we sure the B5 computers can run Doom? One presumes if they can travel through interstellar, through like a, a, a interdimensional space, that it can play Doom. Are we sure? Because JMS doesn't seem to think so. I can play a lot more than Doom on my phone, and my phone can't go through hyperspace. So yes, I'm reasonably certain that they can do that. I'm 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 thoroughly in disbelief, but um, we are we are rapidly approaching an hour and a half of recording time here. At least twenty so. minutes of which has been about porn, and I feel like <laughs> I've done my job on this podcast today. All right. Do we got anything else that we want to... No, let's end this before I, I, I derail us into some weird direction again. Okay. So next time we are going to be covering uh, Lines of Communication and Conflicts of Interest, episodes 11 and 12 of season four. More Mars. Until next time, be seeing you. The Babylon Project is an independent production all views expressed on the show are our own. Clips from the original show remain property of the original owner. Music information can be found in the show notes. The rest of the show is licensed under a Creative Commons 4.0 share alike no derivatives license. I am the very model of a modern major general. I've information, vegetable, animal, and mineral. I know the kings of England, and I quote the facts historical, from Marathon to Waterloo in order categorical. I am very well acquainted, too, with matters mathematical. I understand equations, both the simple and quadratical. About binomial theorem, I'm teeming with a lot of news. With many cheerful facts about the square of the hypotenuse. With many cheerful facts about the square of the hypotenuse. Many cheerful facts about the square of the hypotenuse. Many cheerful facts about the square of the hypotenuse. I'm very well acquainted too with what? What? <laughs>